Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 18, a clear up on kingdoms and back up the boot in the 9th century. In this episode, we're going to do something we've done before to kick off, and that is to deal with listener feedback that has been very useful to give us some direction. In this particular case, a really big thank you goes out to Sen, who is a new Patreon supporter and has written in with some observations and some questions. A double thank you for a new collaborator and supporter. First of all, she corrected a few date issues that I had in episode 16, in which I kept adding on about a thousand years, such as 813 becoming 1813, which would have had Charlemagne hanging around at the same time as Napoleon, which could have made things very interesting. She then asked another very good question, and I quote, You mentioned the Kingdom of Italy in one or more episodes, but my understanding is that it did not exist until after the Risorgimento in 1861. Now, what Sen says is in part true. The internationally recognized nation called the Kingdom of Italy and covering most of what Italy is today, did indeed exist from the unification in 1861 to the referendum on the Republic held on the 2nd of June 1946. However, before that, there had been other territorial entities which, to varying degrees of legitimacy and recognition, were by some called Kingdom of Italy. Odoacer, who ruled Italy from 476 to 493, did so officially as a patrician under the authority of the emperor in Constantinople, but among some of his collaborators and subjects he was also referred to as king. Theodoric, who followed, ruled over what was known as the Ostrogoth Kingdom of Italy, also due to the fact that he made every effort to keep his local ex-Roman subjects separate from his Goths, hence the specification of Ostrogoth kingdom. Later, the Lombards alternated between referring to the people and not the land when they used the term King of the Lombards to using the term that was first applied to Adelwald, son of Agilulf and Theodolinda, of Rex Totius Italia, King of all Italy which he wasn't. Logic would have it that a king should have a kingdom. This was at the beginning of the 7th century. Initially, when the Franks took over from the Lombards in 774, they started referring to themselves as kings of the Franks and the Lombards, but soon enough, the first real use of the term kingdom of Italy stuck. Ironically, it was the furthest territorial entity from covering the whole of Italy that had existed so far, claiming to be the Kingdom of Italy. A further irony is the term Italy 
in pre-Roman times initially only referred to the south of the peninsula. However, the Franks at the time were the big boys on the block, and if a king with a large army of big, hairy Franks wanted to call a bit of Italy in the north the Kingdom of Italy, it was best not to argue with him. Anyway, all of this to say that although it is quite correct that when we use the term Kingdom of Italy, we should think first of all of the kingdom that was united under King Victor Emmanuel II in 1861 and lasted until 1946 when his grandson, Victor Emmanuel III, abdicated and his son, Umberto II, was then voted out. While we're on the subject, we mentioned that the Kingdom of Italy ended and the Republic started on the 2nd of June 1946. Relatively recently, the 2nd of June was reinstituted as a national holiday. And that, as I record, is next week, the 2nd of June. So, look forward, or don't look forward, to a special episode on the Festa della Repubblica, Republic Day. For the moment, as Forrest Gump would say, that's all I have to say about that. So, last time, we left the north and headed all the way down to Sicily, where we saw that in 827, the Arab or Saracen invasion of the island started and continued for the rest of the century, including raids on the mainland. But what was the situation on that mainland? Well, listeners will remember that in the south, we had the Lombard Duchy of Benevento, which had always tried to maintain independence from the rest of the Lombard Kingdom, and at times was rather successful, especially when a weaker king was on the throne of Pavia, the capital of the Lombard Kingdom. When the Lombard Kingdom fell to Charlemagne in 774, the Duke of Benevento was Arechi, and for a moment he entertained the idea of becoming king himself and setting up the kingdom in the south. But he soon found it was a lot wiser to go one level up, but not all the way to king. So Benevento became a principality. Arechi took the title of Dux et Princeps Samnitium et Longobardorum, Duke and Prince of the Samnites and the Lombards. Here are those old Samnites popping up again. The Principality was also known as Longobardia Minor, Minor Longobardia, although it doesn't seem to have caught on as much. The capital was also known as Ticinum Geminum, the second or twin Pavia after the capital of the northern Lombard kingdom, but that also didn't stick and it just stayed Benevento. Arechi had tried to encroach upon the lands of the papal state by taking Terracina from the Pope and even looking towards Byzantium to form an anti-Frankish and anti-papal alliance, and then ended up with Charlemagne besieging Salerno in return. Charlemagne took the second son of Arechi, Grimoald, as hostage, and when the old prince died and the elder brother died in Salerno, where the capital had been moved to, Grimoald, in the pocket of the Franks, was the new prince. Although he had started off as a captive of the Franks, he soon brought the principality back to its old independence, causing quite a bit of trouble for the Franks. 
Charlemagne himself wasn't able to bring him to heel due to the fact that the army he sent down was overcome by a bout of dysentery. Later, when the son of Charles and King of Italy, Pippin, demanded tribute, Grimoald answered, Liber et ingenu sum natus utroque parente, semper ero liber, credo, tuente deo. Which translates into, I was born free from a free family, knowing both parents. I will always be free, I think, if God will protect me. That's a pretty good answer. Grimmel died without an heir, and so he nominated his trusted head of the guard as successor, and he became Grimald the Fourth. Our Grimald before being obviously Grimald the Third, but let's not count all our Grimalds here. The new emperor, Louis the Pious, demanded submission. The prince made some vague promises of submission and tribute, but he never really delivered. Neither he nor his successor, Sicone. It was sort of, yeah, yeah, Lewis, don't worry, tributes in the mail may take a while, but you know, it's coming. So off you go then, bye. The successive princes then used the confusion up north to extend the margins of their autonomy and expand to the point of demanding tribute from the now practically independent city of Naples and even taking over Amalfi under Duke Sicard. The growing power of the principality proved, along with the other independent duchies and cities that had been cut off from the Byzantines, a good guarantee against Saracen expansion. Indeed, aside from taking Bari and continuous raids, they made no further expansion northwards for the moment. However, at the height of his power, Prince Sicard of Benevento was killed in a palace coup in 839, and civil war ensued. It dragged on for ten years, and finally, in 1851, the principality was divided between the brother of the assassinated prince, who was Sikonulf, who ruled over the principality of Salerno, and the assassin, Radelchi, who became the prince of Benevento. I've put a map up with the episode, and you can also see it under the map section of the website, www.ahistoryofitaly.com But to give you a mental image, take the bottom part of the boot that is Italy and take away the toe and the heel, which nominally belonged to Byzantium, and what is left up to just below Rome was the Principality of Benevento. Then slice that more or less in half vertically along the boot and you get the two new principalities. The Long Civil War had made things rather messy. Both sides had called the Saracens to help in different times, and local lords and counts had taken advantage of the situation to act more independently. In some cases, this division made resisting the Arabs a lot more difficult, and indeed Naples, Salerno and Benevento were all brutally sacked, and a Saracen colony was founded in the south of Lazio, and the Byzantine Empire took back most of Puglia. It wasn't all doom and gloom, however. We also catch a glimpse of what the independent Italian city-states will be able to do when they band together. For example, in 849, an alliance of Naples, Gaeta, Amalfi and the Pope 
were able to defeat a Saracen fleet near Ostia. The division of the principality did not last forever. In the year 899, Atanulf of Capua took over Benevento and once again reunited the two principalities. They were divided again later, but once again united in 978 by Pandolfo Testa di Ferro, Pandolfo Ironhead. That's a cool name. But that's getting way ahead of things. Let's stick around in the 9th century, and rather than travel too far in time, let's move down to the Duchy of Naples. We have mentioned more than once that Naples was a duchy under the control of the Byzantine Empire that gradually became independent. So it's not easy to actually identify a single moment in which the transition to independence occurred. However, we can identify some important steps. First of all, in 661, Emperor Constant II nominated Basilius as Duke. This is important because he wasn't sent from Constantinople, but was part of the local nobility. Then, in 763, Duke Stephen II of Naples had local coins minted with the patron of the duchy and his own monogram. Nothing says independence like having your own money. However, Naples went back under control of the empire in 818 for a brief period with imperial representatives ruling the city. That did not last long. Indeed, in 821, three years later, with Duke Stephen III, control of the duchy fell back under local control, and in time the duke would become hereditary. The Neapolitans had a difficult existence in this period, almost always on the defensive, but they generally did a pretty good job of playing the alliance game that involved the powerful neighbouring principality of Benevento, the independent cities of Gaeta and Amalfi, as well as dealing with the Saracen raids. Life wasn't easy, but the duchy was able to survive more or less intact for about three and a half centuries. But once again, we're moving too far ahead. Let's now end our trip by popping up to the other ex-Lombard duchy, that of Spoleto. The story here is a little more straightforward. Spoleto, bordering with the new Frankish kingdom of Italy in the north, fell under its influence as well as that of the neighbouring papal states to the southwest. Indeed, the Pope was able to influence the nomination of dukes who were friendly to the Franks. The first of these was Winigus I, a Frankish duke who took the place of the last Lombard duke of Spoleto, Ildeprand, who died in 789, marking the end of the Lombard domain of the duchy. Winigus ruled until 822 and was an important tool in the hands of the Carolingians to help influence the political happenings in Rome herself. The fact that Spoleto got absorbed into the Carolingian papal spheres of influence doesn't mean it's going to disappear from our story. Indeed, at the end of the 9th century, Duke Guido or Guy II or third, depending on what he was the head of at the time, even got up as far as you could, becoming the Holy Roman Emperor. But we'll get back to that. For now, let's end our trip there. As we unpack and look over the holiday pics, just a reminder of where we've been. We left the Carolingians up in the north with the sons of Louis the 
Pius, fighting it out two episodes ago, to come down to Sicily in the last episode to see that the Saracens had meanwhile started to take over Sicily and harry the coasts of the mainland, even taking the city of Bari for thirty-odd years. Then we went back up the boot in time to see the powerful and independently-minded duchy of Benevento turn into principality and then into two principalities, that of Benevento and that of Salerno. Then we had a quick pop into the Duchy of Naples, and then Spoleto to see it fall under the influence of the Carolingians and the Pope, but doing a bit of meddling in the affairs of Rome in turn. That was a nice trip, quite a drive though. I once drove from Reggio which would have been in the heart of the Carolingian kingdom of Italy, down to Puglia, which would have been in the Principality of Benevento, and all I can say is thank you, Netflix. But Puglia is wonderful. And I finally fulfilled a long-term desire to visit the site of the Battle of Cannae. Pretty cool stuff indeed. Anyway, I wonder, I digress, and I indeed do dilly-dally. I hope you listeners didn't mind all this moving around, because now that we no longer have only a couple of dominant powers ruining the peninsula, we're going to have to do a lot more of this moving around geographically and back and forth in time. I hope we don't get too dizzy, but we'll try and break things down a bit and focus on the general picture as much as possible. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks again in particular to Sen, new patron supporter and vigilant listener. Thank you. Thanks to everyone else for listening. Remember that if you want to get in touch, you can send an email. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com at the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com. You can click through to our resources or our social media or our YouTube page where we have some videos on Italian cities or more recently on the Cervi family, an important moment of the resistance in the Emilia-Romagna area during the Second World War. Once again, thanks very much to everyone, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media Hey podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.